You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Okay, last week uh, we, we kicked off this series in 1 Corinthians and we looked at the planting of the church in Corinth. We saw the amazing, unstoppable work of God as he brought together this church. If you haven't heard last week's message, please download it. That's a shameless plug of my own sermon, but you need to go and listen to it um, because there's some truths in there that will really strengthen you. And so five years after um, the Apostle Paul had planted the church in Corinth, um, he gets news of some issues going on in the church. He's in Ephesus right across the water and he hears that there's some things that are going on and he ends up writing to the church in Corinth and he actually writes at least four letters to this church. The book of 1 Corinthians It not actually the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth because in chapter 5 he talks about his previous letter, one I previously wrote to you. So the book of 1 Corinthians is probably 2 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians is probably 3rd or 4th Corinthians. So it's a little confusing but he's written to them a number of times to put some things straight with them. We see that right at the outset of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul writes this letter. He says, our brother Sosthenes. Now Sosthenes is the guy who last week gets beaten up uh, because he's come to know Jesus and he's the synagogue leader, which is a bit of an issue because he's basically converted now to trusting in Jesus and he's trying to, you know, his job is to lead synagogue. He gets beaten up for his faith and now whether or not he was forced out of Corinth or whether he willingly went with Paul to Ephesus to go and start this church, we don't know. But what we conclude is that Sosthenes is not backing down. He's not allowing himself to be uh, cowed by the beating that he's taken and he's going on being sold out for Jesus. So Paul has heard about these difficulties in the church and he writes to them, a church that's really crumbled to uh, the the pressure, crumbled under the pressure of the society around it. They were being tried in, an, in a really difficult city, really, these, these believers, and they were failing the test massively. Just to outline the issues, there's division and quarreling in the church. They're quarreling over which leader they follow, which is their apostle. Some of them, they like Paul, but some of them, they like Peter. Some of them like Apollos, who we heard about last week. And they're, getting, they're quarreling over these issues. And there's disorderliness in their public worship. There's some people who speak in tongues and they just go on and on and on. And sometimes loads and loads of people speak in tongues and there's not really much sense. People can't really understand what's going on, especially people who aren't uh, yet Christians. And then there's people who were taking the Lord's Supper, uh, the bread and the wine, when their lives were just racked with unrepentant sin. Some were eating the food before others had arrived. So the rich people who didn't have to work as long hours would get to the church service first and eat all the bread and drink all the wine. So the poor people who had to work longer hours would get there and there was nothing left. There was sexual immorality in the church. A guy was sleeping with his stepmother and no one had the guts to challenge him on it. No one said, hey dude, that's, that's not right. That's wrong. That's really wrong. No one had done it. There was people who were using prostitutes. As we mentioned last week, the, the city was known for prostitution. Thousands of uh, prostitutes would roam the streets at night. And instead of dealing with disputes and in love, Christians were taking other Christians to court instead of dealing with things in a calm and gentle manner. There was confusion about what foods were permissible to eat. Some people were saying, no, you can't eat those foods. And they were kind of telling other people, condemning them, no, you're not supposed to eat those foods. And so they'd written to Paul saying, what's the deal here? What are we supposed to do? And to top it all off, it seems that some in this church were claiming to be Christians whilst denying that Jesus 
really did rise from the dead. You cannot be a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's kind of a core belief right there. There's, there's certain wider issues that you know, maybe there's a bit of a difference of opinion on. This is a very much a core one. And there's some people there saying, well, maybe he didn't really rise from the dead. And Paul, as we come to the very end of this letter in a few months' time, we're going to see he really hammers this one home. So it's fair to say that the church in Corinth was in quite a mess. It really was in quite a mess. And Paul is moved deep within. He's a father figure to this church. That's what an apostle is, really. It's someone who who motivates and stirs up mission to the not yet reached uh, places. But it's also someone who's a father uh, to a number of churches. And he is moved deeply within because he's seeing that they're in such a mess. And he writes in chapter 4, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's not coming down with them on a ton of bricks to make them feel ashamed. He's, he's trying to help them to mature. He's seeing them as children. That's what parents do. They don't, uh, they don't aim to bring shame on their children. They aim to bring them into maturity. Paul really loves this church, and he's, it's painful to him to see them walking in error. So what does he do? What do parents do when they see their children misbehaving and they walk in on their children doing something that they shouldn't do? Well, parents, we might say, what are you doing? What, come, come over here. Tell me what you've just done. Well, don't make me come over there. We might come in in a number of different ways. But Paul, instead of going, how dare you? He comes in in a way that we might not expect. And he showers them from the outset of this letter with glorious gospel truth. He showers them with mighty truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He comes to them and he reminds them of the truth. He reminds them of what Jesus has done and of who they are in him. We're going to see here that this is important for us as well because in his opening lines he greets all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a letter to the church in Corinth but it's also a letter to all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the ones who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that we cannot do it. We cannot save ourselves. We need a saviour. We cannot live the life that we're supposed to live. We cannot be right with God without a saviour. We've called upon his name. That's all we did. That's all we did. We called upon the name of Jesus. And so this book is for us. We can learn from it. Because let's be honest here. Our lives have mess in them, don't they? Our lives have mess in them. Just think about that for a moment. Don't dwell on it too much, but think about the mess in your life. Don't think about the person two rows behind you who you're thinking, I'm really glad they're here to hear this. No, think about the mess in your life for a moment. There's mess in your life. And this mighty truth that we're going to tuck into this morning, this is going to have such an impact if we take it to heart. We need that mess clearing out, don't we? Well, lean in today. Listen up today. Have an open heart today. And let's read together how the Apostle Paul tackles this church that's in such a mess. I'm going to read from the NIV today. We're going to read verses 1 to 9, and the verses are going to come up on the screens around the room. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So instead of going in all guns blazing, Paul comes in with a truckload of truth to remind the Christians of who God is and of who they are. The reality is that this truth, if it's taken to their hearts, it's going to bulldoze the mess out of the way, the mess that they've found themselves in. This is mighty, powerful truth. This is mighty truth. And this is Paul's approach throughout this book again and again as we go through the chapters, we're going to see Paul reminding the church at Corinth of who they are and of what Jesus has done for them. He does it again and again. Don't you know you're not your own? Don't you know Jesus has paid for you with a great price? Don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? He reminds them again and again of these truths. And this is actually his approach throughout the letters that he writes. He reminds people of the good news. Before he gets to any kind of imperatives, any kind of, hey, listen to my advice here. Listen to what I'm saying here. Do this, do that. He reminds them of the truth. He's a firm believer that the gospel of Jesus Christ really does bring freedom and change. We must be reminded of all that God has done for us. And again and again in this book, that's what Paul does. He just reminds this church of the powerful truths of the gospel. He is convinced that this truth is powerful to change minds and to change lives. That's truth that changes us. It's truth that sets us free. It's truth that transforms our minds. So what are these truths that Paul digs out in these first few verses? Firstly, he tells the Corinthian church, he reminds them that they have been sanctified. He reminds them they've been sanctified. This word means several things. It means to make holy, but it also means to set apart or to dedicate. In the ESV, the English Standard Version, and maybe in other translations you've got there, it will literally use the word saint. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, you are saints. You are saints. This is the church that I've just described. He's saying you're saints. Why are they saints? Was it because they were amazing at ministering to the poor like Mother Teresa, who's just become a saint in the Catholic church? Was it because they were amazing miracle workers? Was it because they were sinlessly perfect? We know it was none of these things. They were saints simply because they had called upon the Lord. They were saying simply because in their need, acknowledging that they couldn't save themselves, they've called upon the Lord. They've not attained to the status of sainthood because of their own merit. They haven't got there because they've done certain things and worked hard to earn God's favor. No, they are saints. You are a saint. If you called upon the name of the Lord, if you've acknowledged that you cannot save yourself, and you said, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you to save me. You are a saint. That's who you are. This is so significant for us. You might be thinking already, how can I be a saint? Even since I've been at church, I've checked out that guy or girl over there, or I've had bad thoughts about him over there thinking, he's such a hypocrite. Or I've I've thought about the things that my boss said to me last week, and I think, how on earth can they get away with that? And they start thinking horrible thoughts about them. You might be thinking, I've sinned already being in church. How on earth can I be a saint? Listen, you're a saint if you've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Your sin, it doesn't affect your status. As a saint, you have been washed clean. I don't know how else to put this. I don't know how else to make this sound fresh or relevant, but it's true. You might think, what about all the evil things I've given myself over to in my lifetime? Well, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He he says, some of you were this and some of you were that. And he names some really dark things. And he says this, such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You might think, I can kind of get how he might accept me or might forgive me, but I cannot, I cannot understand how he would call me a saint. Well, Paul's addressed that. Such were some of you. You were sinners in this way, but now you are saints. You are sanctified. You have been justified. 
That's your primary identity. Your primary identity is not one of a sinner. You might think, well, I'm, you know, might even use that phrase sometimes. Well, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. Well, your primary identity is actually of a saint. That's, your, that's who you are now if you've placed your faith in Jesus. And you might say, well, doesn't the Apostle Paul say himself that he's a sinner? No, he says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. So he's magnifying the grace of God, saying, if I can get in on this, then anyone can get in on this. Because I did some awful things. But he didn't see his identity as a sinner. He saw his identity primarily as a saint. It's important to grasp this because sometimes you might say, well, it's just who I, you know, just going to have to put up with this because it's who I am. It's part of my personality. I can't really help it. Just live with it. The way I've been brought up, not true. When you're brought into Christ, when you place your faith in Jesus, you're in Christ and your status is now as a saint. I want you to grasp this truth because it really will help you to change. It really will help you to walk out your day-to-day life with God. I'm not trying to boost your self-esteem here because you know your own life, don't you? You know your innermost being. This isn't massaging your ego. I'm telling you the truth here because when we line up with it, when we allow our hearts and minds to line up with the truth, it really will transform us. Knowing that you're a saint, you can have full access to the Father. You have been made clean. You have been washed. You don't have to have anything come in the way of you and your Father anymore. Nothing. Nothing coming in the way of you and your Father. When you're a saint, because... You've been completely washed clean. Nothing standing in the way now. You can come up to him with confidence because Jesus has made a way. It's all of his grace. Paul knew that this was transformational truth. I don't think there's anything else, friends, that will bring about the change in your life that you want to see than grasping the truth of God's grace, than grasping the truth of what he's done for you, that you're washed clean permanently. When you know that, you'll run to God instead of running from God. You'll run to God for your help in your time of need. You'll come to him with confidence because he's got mercy and grace for you in your time of need. But if you think that you're just a miserable sinner, and if you think that's your identity now, then you're not going to run to God, are you? You're going to run from him. And you're not going to get help, and you're going to muddle along, thinking, I've got to deal with it on my own. But then when you know that you're saved, and you're set free, and you're a saint, you can boldly come to God, and you can boldly ask him for help. You can boldly ask him. We're saints. Sinning doesn't come natural to you anymore. Sinners, well, they sin. Saints, well, they're called to something higher. And we see here that we are called to some things. That's the second uh, truth that Paul writes in this passage. I wanted to stick out here that we're called to some things. We're called to be holy and we're called to fellowship with Jesus. And I'm going to show us that these are really not two different things. Saints are those who count themselves as dead to sin. In Romans chapter 6, Paul urges the Roman church to count themselves, to consider themselves, to reckon themselves as dead to sin. No longer having to give themselves to to sinful desires. No longer offering the members of their body to sinful things, but actually saying, I'm dead to that now. That's not who I am anymore. He says we're new creations. We don't need to uh, allow sin to reign in in the members of our bodies anymore. We have the power to rule over the members of our bodies. Some of you need to really hear that this morning. You, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, you have power to rule over your body. You don't have to do whatever your body says. You don't have to do whatever your your, your old sinful nature says. You have power now in Christ to say no. You have power to say, no, I'm not going to give myself to that. We are free from slavery to sin because we are not sinners but saints. This is how I put it into practice. When a tempting thought comes into my mind, I say to myself, that's not who I am. That's not what I'm called to be. I've been called to much, much more. I've been called to do great things in the kingdom of God. I've been called to fruitfulness and you have too. 
And so when, it's, when a tempting thought comes to me, I'm saying, no, that's, that's not what I'm called to better than that. I'm called to more than that. As Paul says it in, in Philippians 3, I, I, press hold, I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. There's some things that he's taken hold of you for. There's some things that he's taken hold of me for that I need to put some things aside here and to press on to take hold of that for which he's taken hold of me. And he has taken hold of you for good works. He's taken hold of you for stuff that will bring him glory and make him famous. And so when a tempting thought comes to your mind, you can say, no, I have been saved for much better than this. This is not who I am anymore. This is not what I'm called to be. Do I get it wrong sometimes? Yes, I do. Do I sometimes uh, fail to recall that truth of my, of my life? Yes, I do. But the more I plunge myself into this truth, the more I plunge myself into the Bible, and I spend time, as I'm going to share in a moment, fellowshipping with Jesus, I can more and more say, no, that's not who I'm called to be. I'm not going to entertain that thought. I'm not going to look at that thing. I'm not going to say that of someone's situation or of myself, because that's not who I'm called to be. That's not who I am anymore. We're called to be holy. Listen, That is not synonymous with boring, okay? That is not synonymous with boring. In fact, the more like Jesus we become, the more full of life and the less boring we'll become. If you think that uh, Jesus was or is boring, then sin is going to seem pretty appetizing to you. Who he is is amazing, totally fascinating, totally satisfying. And in calling us to holiness, he's calling us to be more like him. And he's calling us to fellowship with him. The calls, we see two calls here, the call to holiness and the call to fellowship with him. They are not different things. These are the same thing. The more we fellowship with Jesus, the more we will change to be like him. Are you fellowshipping with Jesus? It's quite an old-fashioned word, isn't it? Fellowship. Are you having deep community with Jesus? Are you deeply communing with Jesus? Or does it simply look like a desperate prayer for a car parking space? Are you, are you fellowshipping with Jesus? That's your calling in life. It's the most important thing in your life is to fellowship with Jesus. If you want to know what you're called to do, you're called to fellowship with Jesus. Everything else flows from your fellowship with Jesus. If I have one legacy in this church, if when we all get to heaven and we're with Jesus, if there's one thing that I guess I want to impart to this church is that fellowship with Jesus is far more important than anything else. To know Jesus is, is far, far more important than anything else. And there's always more to know. That same Apostle Paul says, I want to know Jesus more. Everything else flows out of that. Everything else that we do, everything else that we might end up doing, it flows out of our fellowship with him. So can I encourage you, can I urge you to consider, what, am I fellowshipping with Jesus? Am I going deep with him? Am I pouring my heart out to him? I can't imagine that the disciples ever thought they needed to hold anything back from Jesus. I can't imagine they ever thought, better not go near Jesus today, he's in a bit of a mood. Better leave Jesus to it today, he doesn't really want to know about our situation. No, there's often times when they're butting in on Jesus and saying, Jesus, Jesus, because they just knew that Jesus was available. They knew that they could speak to him and pour their hearts out to him, even when they say some downright stupid things. Pour your heart out to him. He, he longs for us to come to him. He longs for us to share with him and be honest with him. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to have his saints come right up to him and pour their hearts out. This is where it all happens. This is where it all begins to change. If you know that there's some things in your life that need to change, and I hope that For each one of us, there's some things we have acknowledged. It all begins from spending time with Jesus. We cannot make you have a relationship with God. We can't do that for you. We can't build a history with God for you. You have to do it yourself. You have to spend that time with him. And from that place, he is going to change you. He's going to make you holy. 
as you walk with him and as you talk with him and as you get in his word and as you say no to some things and yes to some things, you will be sanctified. You'll be made holy. We're called to holiness. We're called actually just to become what we already are. We're already sanctified, already made right in his sight. And as he changes us, we're just becoming what we already are. So we're called to holiness and to fellowship with Jesus, which are one and the same thing. And finally, we're kept, we're provided for. For in him you have been enriched in every way. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. In Christ you have all you need. You never need to say of your situation, I'm lacking something. He's saying to the Corinthian church, there's basically, he's not saying there's no excuses. He's just saying, for the situation that you're in, the mess that you're in, you have all you need to come out of it. You have Jesus. You have his spirit within you. You never need to say of your situation, I'm lacking something. There'll be things that you can ask for. And let me encourage you to be askers. Ask your heavenly father. It says in James, you don't have because you don't ask. Be askers. Please be askers. Ask. He can say no. He's not like a parent who, who, who cannot say no to their children for fear that they might reject him. No, he can say no. But he says yes a lot as well. Don't hold back. It's totally fine to ask him. But know this when you're asking lots you already have all you need in second peter 3 and verse 1 it says that god has given us everything we need for living a godly life you have everything you need don't need to go with the lie that you're somehow not provided for or that somehow if your situation was a bit like so-and-so's then you'd be okay i played tennis a few weeks ago with my friend raj and he is amazing at tennis like he can serve at like a million miles an hour I serve and it literally just drops over the net. It's embarrassing. It really is. And uh, after wiping the floor with all the opponents, I said, Raj, can I borrow your racket? Because I thought if I had his racket, then suddenly I would be like Andy Murray. Then suddenly I'd be uh, conquering all. And it improved my game by about 1%. And I realized afterwards, it's not about the equipment that he has. He's just a really good tennis player. When you look around at people that you... You see and you think, I want to emulate something in them. I want to have the godliness they have. I want to have the marriage that they have. I want to have that attitude in the workplace that they have. Whatever it might be, it's not that they have something that you don't have access to. You have all you need in Jesus. In Jesus, you've been enriched in every way, it says in the scripture. He's going to provide for you. And not only will he provide for you, he will keep you strong until that final day. He will keep you strong. God has a really, really firm grip on your life. He has a really firm grip on your life. I don't know if you know this. He's got a firm grip on your life. I sometimes, I adjust my grip on my children's hands, depending on the situation that we're in. We went to uh, France recently, had a great uh, day trip in Paris. And honestly, when we were walking through the center of Paris, there was no way that they were going to get rid of my hands. There was no way that I was going to let go of them, because if I let go of them, I might not have seen them again. So there was no way that they were going to get out of my grip. There was no way. But when I go to the park and there's a big green open expanse ahead of us, I'm holding their hands just because I want to. And if they want to go and run, they can go and run. But you need to know this about your heavenly father. His grip on you is really, really firm. It says in John uh, chapter 10, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus is saying, you really think that anyone could beat my Father in an arm wrestle? Jesus is saying, your Heavenly Father has a firm grip on your life and he will keep you strong until that final day. And not only strong, but blameless we see as well. How can that be? How can that be? How can it be that we could be found blameless 
on the final day. We know the sin in our own lives. How can it be that on that final day of judgment, when Jesus returns to judge all things, how can it be that we will be found blameless? Well, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. There was a great exchange that happened on the cross. Jesus Christ took our sin and our shame. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be in God's sight blameless. And it's all of his grace. And Jesus Christ is the same. He doesn't change. It's not like his righteousness stops counting. No, his righteousness continues to count. He, he never put a foot wrong. And on that final day, what will make us blameless is the righteousness of Christ. There won't be any kind of progress that we make. And yes, Jesus wants us to make progress. He wants us to become more and more like him. What will make us blameless on that day is the robes of righteousness that Jesus Christ has placed on us. Listen, I want to just appeal to you. If you don't know Jesus, you need to know your sin forgiven. That's your biggest need. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 that all those who call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. Even those who have made a right royal mess of their lives, like many of us here have. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to know that you can call upon the name of the Lord. You can say, Jesus, I know I need forgiveness. I know I need to be made clean. I need you to clothe me in your righteousness. Call out to him. Father, we thank you for these amazing truths. Thank you that these truths are mighty. That When we take them to our hearts, they really will clear out the mess in our lives. They really will. Lord, and we we look to you, Lord. We thank you that we are saints. We thank you that we are called. We thank you that we are kept. We thank you, Father, for your amazing grace on our lives. We love you so much, Lord. And it's all because you first loved us. We worship you. We celebrate this truth now. Come and meet with us in great power as we celebrate. Come and meet us in great power as we celebrate you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.